Welcome to Long Thread Media Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publisher of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by Treenway Silks. Treenway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons. At www.treenwaysilks.com, you'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Treenway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Treenway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder Linda Ligon, sitting in today for Ann Merrill. Joining me is Peggy Orenstein, author of Unraveling, What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dyeing Wool, and Making the World's Ugliest Sweater. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Linda. Thanks for having me on. Well, can I begin by contradicting you? That is not the world's ugliest sweater. I <laughs> Believe know. me, I've seen I worse. Know. It doesn't look as good on, but yes, I and, and I will tell you, first, my editor said that too, and I was like, first of all, I got very attached to the title before I made the sweater, before I did the book and the project, uh-huh. Uh-huh. but also, I feel like it speaks to the fact that it's okay if it was the world's ugliest sweater. That, and I hope we'll talk about this, it but does. Like the, the, the journey and the process being more important than the product. Exactly. And in fact, it does have quite a backstory. Yes. And what I'm wondering is when COVID shut life down so thoroughly in 2019, how did you hit on the idea for this book? Were you surprised at where it took you? Oh, I was so surprised where it took me. But the idea, I don't know, you know, I... I I did an event the other day in Santa Rosa. I live in Northern California. And somebody came who was in one of my previous books, Girls and Sex. And she raised her hand afterwards and said, you know, when you were interviewing me in 2012, you were talking about wanting to go sheep shearing. And I thought, I was? So, I mean, I sort of, I guess I've had a long held, I think it's, there's a bit of a, you know, I, maybe for all of us, because I've, I've met so many crafters um, and hand workers since I've done this who've either had this fantasy or explored it. But you work with fiber, and then I'm a journalist, and you start asking questions about it, right? Like, where did this come from? How did this, whoever thought of knitting, goodness, two sticks, and lo- you know, like, how? And then eventually, like, fiber, how'd that happen? And you just keep going back and back, and I'm somebody who needs to learn by doing so. I needed to go off and during, yeah, 2020, during uh, lockdown, I learned how to shear sheep. I learned how to process fleece. Um, as many of your listeners already know, I learned how to themselves how to do. I, I learned how to spin to use natural dyes and dye yarn and then knit the result into a sweater. I've been a knitter since I was 11 or 12. But the surprising part was all that I learned along the way, you know, about um, <laughs> my dog's in the background, sorry. Um, that you can tell the whole history of the world, right? I mean, you know, you can tell the whole history yeah. of the world through fiber. And all that I learned about 
the impact of the industrial fashion industry on the planet, all that I learned about history, all that I learned about the radical nature of women's traditional work, all that I learned about the lore and the wildness of things about things like color, like that the ancient Greeks couldn't perceive the color blue, you know, all these different things. And then the piece that I learned about myself, both as a person interested in creativity and also as a woman facing later midlife and the empty nest and declining and dying parents um, during a pandemic. So all of that part yeah. was a well, surprise. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure it was. And in fact, most of, most of your previous books, I guess with the exception of Waiting for Daisy, with the exception of that, most of your books you've had to, you've really focused on other people. You've interviewed mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of people. And for this book, you really had to do a deep dive into all of these things you're suggesting about losing your mother mm-hmm. and coping with your father's declining health and watching your daughter fledge. And was that hard? I don't know that I had a choice about the introspection. I mean, it was just happening in my life. And partly because of lockdown, I think all of us who were financially stable and able to you know, sit in our houses and not be essential or getting sick, we're forced into a lot of introspection. And um, for me, the way that I work things out is by writing them. And I'll tell you, I mean, Waiting for Daisy, I hadn't realized until actually, a lot of times with books, you don't kind of realize what they're about until after they're out in the world and people start responding to them. And I hadn't realized the extent to which Unraveling was speaking to Waiting for Daisy, to my earlier memoir, um, when I was a younger woman, and when I, you know, that that was about the years we spent um, going through infertility, going through cancer, and and trying to have our daughter, who's now, uh, yeah, in, in this book is leaving the house. Uh, mm-hmm. In the last book, it ends with her being born. In this book, it ends with her leaving for college, and so so it was really a conversation. And in a lot of ways, this was easier to a degree because um, with Waiting for Daisy, you know, I was writing about my sex life, Linda. So (laughs) (laughs) this was was a snap. (laughs) This was a snap. (laughs) But I didn't realize in this book, I knew it was going to be about my mom, you know, because my mom, like so many of us, my mom taught me how to knit. And that became sort of a running gag in the book. I would abbreviate it in my notes, SLHFM, she learned from her mom. But it became very much about my dad, too, who was during lockdown in Minneapolis. He was 94 then. He's died since since then. But um, he was 94 and he was in a facility in Minneapolis where nobody could go in or out. He couldn't see his kids. He had dementia. Um, he got COVID. Uh, you know, it, it, so, so it was sort of about, and I didn't know if I was ever going to see him again. So yeah. a lot of it was about reckoning with that and also about how learning these old skills, learning these ancient skills, which force a person to slow down, allowed me to yeah. sit while I was doing things like the tedious work of carding wool, which is really boring, um, really boring. with him on really boring um, with him on FaceTime, and just be with him in a way that had been very difficult for me to do. Uh, so, so the and I'm so I look I think about that all the time. I'm so grateful, so grateful for the gift of that time that we had together. So you really uh, you're spinning and you're knitting and you're dying and even even you're sharing it has really integrated with your life challenges, it sounds like. Yeah, it did. And and beyond that, too, I mean, I think, especially with the sharing and, and, and thinking um, along the way about how those of us who do handwork, you know, our materials are important to us. The making is important to us. The um, 
giving of what we make can be very important to us. And we care. We recognize what it takes to make a garment or, or a piece of art um, with fiber. And the shearing and going was, was the section where I really confronted what had happened in the world in terms of the rise of synthetic fibers and the impact of that on the planet that I had never thought about before. And that really, even though it was kind of overwhelming when I first was writing about it and looking into it, and I sort of joked that, you know, I'm already composting and recycling and driving my Prius and I live in California so I don't flush if it's only pee and doing all these things and now I have to look at you know I just want to buy a pair of pants you know I just want to buy and it was it's it just I just thought no but you have to know these things and I had not the the shearing and the and being at the ranch and learning about what regenerative agriculture was and all this really brought me to um consuming clothing in a different way and asking the question of why we don't look at our clothing the way most of us have begun looking at our food and starting to do that. Yeah. And and what did spending all those months making one single sweater reveal to you about possible ways forward? I mean, you met people on this journey. I'm thinking of the fiber shed Mm -hmm. who have literally made all their clothes from local materials. Yeah. Rebecca Burgess wrote about making all of her clothing for a year. And she's the um, founder of Fiber Shed in Northern California from Natural Materials. And it really makes you think much more deeply about what you buy, how much you need, what it's made of, who made it, and the impact on Mm -hmm. them. I kind of was dimly aware that fast fashion was bad. I don't shop at those stores anyway, so I wasn't that clued in. But seeing what the impact has been in the last 30 years of Zara, of H&M, and now Boohoo and Sheen, and these online retailers that have thousands of new designs a day at dirt cheap prices made of plastic, synthetics, nylon, orlon, polyester, whatever it is, that we need to and and I felt I I wrote this piece for the New York Times about how knitting has always and other fibercraft too has Mm -hmm. always been a way that women express political dissent or patriotism or you know the, the political voice and that this would be a good time for those of us who know what it takes to make a garment to turn our voice to the industrial fashion industry and there are there are people in these local um, communities like Fibershed, the, the, the ranch that I went to to shear um, was really an example of a different way of ranching that's regenerative, that actually gives back to the earth. Doesn't It's not even neutral. It's beyond that. It's better than that. And I also um, found that this year, the European Union is starting to really turn its gaze to regulation with the fashion industry. And they need to be regulated. It's not self-regulation is not going to do it. So there are places we can... We can act as individuals, and that's great, but we need to push collectively. Yeah, there, I was struck by a, a line in your book saying, making can be a way to reset a disposable culture, to connect basic processes in a world where we've lost such awareness. And that's really what you're saying, and it's very powerful. And yeah. it was very much the message of the piece you did for the New mm-hmm. York Times, yeah, which thank you. was a great piece, and I love those gloves. I know, wasn't that cool? Apparently, she yeah. made that. That's a sculpture made from different knit pieces. So I don't even know if it mm-hmm. would be po- people keep saying, "Where's the pattern?" I don't yeah. even know if it would be possible <laughs> to make a pattern from that, but it's it's a pretty cool sculpture. But yeah, I mean, we've you know, I I, I felt sort of like 
you know, that moment where in the old V8 ad where you're like, oh, could have had a V8, you know, you smack yourself on the head. I thought, Mm -hmm. how is it that I have been for years now thinking, oh, you know, my, my food choices matter and I need to support, you know, local organic produce and all of this stuff. Never thought about my clothes. And so I guess I hoped, you know, I didn't write, I can't say that this was an omnivore's dilemma for clothing exactly, but I wanted it, really wanted the book ultimately to have, and I didn't when I started, but as I learned, it was really important to me that the book had the, those elements and challenged those ideas of the sort of indifference or, or blitheness that we look at our, yeah. at buying clothing. Yeah. You, uh, you know that your daughter and her friends are pretty conscious of where their clothes come from. Yeah. In fact, sometimes she sort of schools you on that. She does. And they, and they try to seek sustainable sources. Is, do you think that's just a fad or is it class privilege or do you think it's a force, a trend? Well, I'd say it's, I don't know if it's class privilege in the sense of economic class, because I think that, I mean, I was just, uh, I did an event recently where somebody said that their daughter, who's 24, and this was somebody who, you know, was very privileged, kind of makes fun of her and says, mom, I got this at H&M, you know, it's bad for human rights, ha, 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 ha. And I just thought, wah. So I, I, you know, my daughter grew up in Berkeley, California. So they're very, those kids tend to be, if they're going to be, you know, they're very conscious. And I know there's a lot of, I talk to a lot of girls um, in a lot of different communities. And I think it's more of a, um, maybe an educational class privilege um, or, or, or something, but they, but they are, and I'm sure, you know, many girls, but they, they, or because they don't have money, they buy stuff on yeah. Depop. I mean, that's the other thing. If you don't have money, you can either go to H&M or you can go to Depop. I mean, my daughter doesn't have any money. So she's, she's always looking for, she's thrifts. She goes to Depop, yeah. but she does that instead. The other option would be Sheen, Boohoo, H&M, and she would never, never. And I, I am so um, proud of her. For that, I'm so glad that she has that consciousness. And yeah, she, I'll say, hey, Daisy, did you know about this and this? And she said, yes, mom, of course I know that. Everybody knows that, you know, and also <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You know, she told me about Good On You, which is a great site um, that so rates. Say that again. Like good, good On You? Like the, oh, like it's, it's from Australia. So Good On You, you know how Australians mm-hmm. say that. It rates popular brands and also offers alternatives that are environmentally conscious and human rights, you know, for planet, for people, for animals, they're conscious Mm -hmm. of all that stuff along the supply chain. Um, And so you can look at alternatives and you can look up whatever it is that you're thinking about and see how that stacks up in terms of its labor and environmental practices and make smarter consumer choices around that. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So that's from my daughter. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. So another alternative is just to not have very many clothes at all. Mm -hmm. And and what would the social and economic effects of that be if everybody just started buying like one thing yeah they don't want you to do that yeah i buy, i mean i buy so much less now so much yeah. i mean i never was a, much of a clothes horse but i really and some of that i thought you know the the truth is we didn't used to buy in our lifetime in, in our years in my lifetime we did not buy consume like this clothing came out four times a year at most and, you know, you probably remember growing up, you went and bought your school clothes, right? And then maybe you went and yeah. bought your summer clothes. And that was it. We did not buy clothes every week. We did not buy $5 clothing, although $5 would have gone further with our clothing, but, you know, whatever the yeah. equivalent would have been, and just toss it after one wearing. But I think the combination of the rise of synthetics, which happened around the time we were little, began um, at, around, you know, in the in the early 60s. Um, and now 70% of our clothing has synthetics, which are plastic. 
they, there's good things about that too, but they're plastic and they don't biodegrade. And in the global South where they all end up in mounds and mounds and mounds, they call them dead white men's clothes. So the rise of synthetics, the rise of fast fashion that allowed for the exploitation of labor and dirt cheap production of these plastic fabrics. And then I think social media, honestly, because I know that I felt, I don't think I wrote about this, but I certainly noticed that I can't remember when social media totally kicked in in the cycle of my books, but certainly boys and sex, maybe girls and sex, but boys and sex for sure. There started being a lot of pictures on me at events online. And I used to wear the same thing at every event. I had my event outfit um, because I knew it looked good. It traveled well. I didn't have to think about it. I don't like to carry around a lot of clothing. But when you start seeing five, six, seven pictures of yourself in different cities all wearing the same thing, you start feeling like, oh, gee, or, or I know it was after it was after Girls and Sex. I did a TED talk that went viral, and then I did a South by Southwest talk that did really well, and then I did some other, and they were all on YouTube, and I was wearing the same thing in all of them, and I thought, oh gosh, maybe I shouldn't, I should, you know, change clothes. People are going to think I only have one outfit, um, and now I think, well, so what if I only have one outfit? And I have again the thing. I have two things I wear at events. I rotate them tops, same pants. And so what if I'm wearing the same thing? That reflects my values now. I like that. I remember being sort of envious of the Chinese during, you know, the last days of Mao when everybody had to wear the same little jacket. I thought I could go for that. (laughs) I guess that was one bright spot, right? Um, Right, Yeah, but it's, it's, um, you know, and honestly, my husband, um, when he was around, I don't know when he did this, maybe when he was around 50, uh, he decided, and he's a documentary filmmaker, so he's kind of an artist. Um, he decided that he was going to have one outfit. He wears je- blue jeans, sometimes black, but usually blue jeans, and a long sleeve wool shirt in the winter, and a short sleeve Izod shirt in the summer, and that's what he wears. And he has several of them, and that's it. And nobody notices, I think, because he's a man. No, if I said when I would say to people, "Have you ever noticed that Stephen wears the same thing always?" They'll say, "Huh? No, I never noticed that." I'm like, for 20 years, he's worn the same outfit. Nobody notices. So well, maybe you know, we should all do that. Yeah, you know, Steve Jobs made kind of a thing of that. Right. He did it. Yeah. 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 So Stephen Okazaki does it too. <laughs> so do you remember do you remember back in the eighties when women wearing furs were assaulted and egged uh-huh. on the streets? Yeah, I lived in New York then. Yeah, can you imagine that happening now with people wearing lycra or polyester? Well, you can't really tell. You couldn't you because you, A, you can't tell, and B, it's in everything, you know. I mean, I feel like I wear a lot of smart wool because I hike a lot. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I chose the smart wool rather than the whatever polyester stuff that breathes, supposedly. Because mm-hmm. um, I thought, oh, wool, that's natural. But it's coated with something that makes it so that it's yeah. washable and that's synthetics. Um, so it's hard to avoid, but I think, you know, we do our best. And again, there's individual, as we know with food, there's the individual choices, those matter. And also they don't matter enough unless we're also pushing governments and industry to make the changes that they need to change for the health of the planet, the people and the animals. Yeah. But you've been knitting for many years. So that part of this project wasn't new to you. No. But there were challenges. I I just chuckled over the chapter of Margaret the Sheep and your adventures with that. Would you do that again? (laughs) Would I shear a sheep again? (laughs) Um well, you know, I keep saying no, but then lately I've kind of been thinking, on the other hand, it was really fun. So I didn't, you know, I, I like, I mean, we're a very urbanized culture. 
And so most of us have not experienced sheep shearing. People are very, you know, interested in the sheep shearing piece because, you know, a, a generation or two ago, we all would know somebody, well, more than one generation, but, you know, not that long ago. You'd know people who sheared sheep or you'd have seen sheared sheep. Part of it is that the wool industry collapsed in this country. Um, and part of it is that we're urbanized. And so I really ignored a lot of red flags, like that the woman who taught me was half my age, that... Um, <laughs> 95% of professional shearers are male, which is partly misogyny, pure and simple, but also because it takes a lot of upper body strength um, to shear sheep. I ignored that that minute for minute sheep shearers burn twice as many calories as marathon runners. All that stuff. You know, I was like almost 60 at that time. Everything was just going right over my head. Boom, boom, boom. And I thought, yeah, sure, sign me up. I can do this. No problem. So it was the physically most difficult thing I have ever done in my life. You've got this animal that outweighs you. It is covered with lanolin, so it's slippery. It doesn't, I always want to say, I'm sure your listeners already know this, but it does not hurt the animal. It's not, um, it's important that sheep are sheared. If they're not sheared, they will die. Um, they will well, you not hope be able you're not to, hurting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you shouldn't if you're doing it right. But if you don't shear them, their fleece just keeps growing because that's how we've bred them. And eventually they can't eat. They get infested with things. They could flip over and um, die from their own pressure on their on their organs. Various things can happen. So you, they need to be shorn. And it doesn't hurt them, but they don't like it. It's like giving somebody a haircut. And since they're like toddlers, if they sense any weakness, they will try to get away and they have hooves and they kick. And yeah, it's, it was, it was, and then you've got a hot whirring blade in your hand with no safety. So I did not hurt the sheep that I should, but I did cut off a couple of my fingers. So it did look sort of like a crime scene, but it was me who was flinging blood everywhere, not the sheep. Yeah. So it was hard, but it was, um, (laughs) I recently talked to the woman who taught me, Laura Kincaid, because uh, the book came out, you know, I said, I'm sending you a book. And she mm-hmm. said, oh, you know, you were really good at that. I was like, you were good, you know, good student. You could. And I thought, Laura, no, I was not. I was really, I was terrible. And the, and she said it to me one point. She said when we were doing it, you're really good at this. Most people are either swearing or crying by now. And I thought I would be, but I have made a commitment to do this as a reporter for my job. So I just have to suck it up. But if it were just me at this point, yeah, I would throw the thing down, burst into tears, curse my head off and go home. That's what I would do. As, as someone who once raised a couple of sheep, I totally relate to what you're, to what you're yeah, saying. It's hard, huh? Yeah. I mean, once you know how, I'm sure you, you cross a line just like yeah. with any yeah. skill and you can, I mean, Laura could do it in three minutes or, or two and a half minutes. Yeah. It took me an hour and a half with my first sheep. Yeah. Well, uh, when you got into the dying part, after you had done the really boring carding and and the tricky spinning, and but then you I got love into the dying. Spinning, yeah. It, I love spinning. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's so talk meditative. Talk about that. Oh, um, yeah. I didn't want to. I didn't want to gloss over how wonderful spinning was. It, it was. I mean, it's you know, it was tricky to learn as as everything was, but. It was so meditative and beautiful, and I just felt like when my hands spun, my mind didn't during the pandemic, you know, or during that's, lockdown. Yeah, well said. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just, I just enjoyed it immensely, and all that I learned about history and women and spinning, you know, which was how women spent much of their lives for much of history was spinning. I particularly became enamored of the of the three fates of Greek myth. Mm-hmm. who were spinners and spin out our all our lives. And the youngest one, who's 
Classo, um, not to put too fine a point on, mm-hmm. uh, would, you know, would spin the thread and then the matron measures it and Atropos, the crone, cuts it. And that sent me off in such a, um, so many thoughts and directions of writing and thinking about my own life and where I was on that continuum and how we travel it. So spinning was, and then fairy tales, I mean, spinning was such a rich thing to do. Yeah. Well, you, you dug into it deeply. And I know that our spinning re, uh, listeners, of whom there are many, will that will really resonate. And then you got into making color. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, it, it felt like the tone of the book changed so much. There was so much mm-hmm. joy in that. Not just reflectiveness, but joy. You, you really dig color, don't you? Yeah, uh, that's I, I, that's interesting that you noticed that. Yeah, I I felt like I could have written. I sort of halfway through thought maybe I should write a book just about color because it it was like everything became psychedelic to me. You know, like I would look at every. So I was doing. I started by doing things in my yard, and. And in my neighborhood, and, and although that basically made Middle Earth colors pretty much, and I branched out eventually, but it made everything sort of pulsate. You know, I look at every, I look at everything a new way. Every every leaf, every tree, every bark, every everything that dropped. You know, every little the little redwood cones. Everything <laughs> suddenly, I thought, what would happen? What color would could I make from that? What what if I put it in a pot and simmered it and put in a little iron? What would turn? You know, it was it was magic. It was alchemy. It was just an incredible thing to do. I I I still walk around and I feel like I see my neighborhood and my surroundings and my yard and everywhere I go differently because of that experience. I can't recommend it enough for anybody who's never tried it to just as a way of of knowing your world. And then you you wrote a whole chapter about the color blue, and mm-hmm. it just sings. That that's oh. a remarkable piece of writing, in my Thank opinion. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed writing that chapter. And in fact, the first part, the first couple pages, I just kept not progressing because I thought, "Oh, I like these pages. I'm just going to write them." <laughs> just go back <laughs> and sort of think, "What if I put this word in? What if I put that?" Well, what if I took this one? You can spend a long time writing a paragraph, um, which was part of the point of blue for me. Um, was was so you know as you know indigo is a totally different thing than yeah. other kinds of dyes, and you have to make a yeah. vat, and you have to. Um, it's, it's 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 there's a lot of chemistry, and I think of it as magic involved. Um, and you dip the fabric, and it comes out green, and then it turns blue, and it's just this incredible thing. But I also realized partway through doing that chapter that I was resisting all the time. And like, in a way, I think that's what you're talking about in the earlier part of the book. I'm saying, oh, I'm terrible at this. I can't do this. It's so hard. I don't, you know, I'm never going to be able to get it. I'm so worried. And then in blue, something shifts in me. And I realize that it's about the doing and that the whole thing is about the doing. It's not about the result. And I, and I talk about how in my office, I had for years this cartoon hanging by Linda mm-hmm. Berry, who's one of my favorites, um, where she writes about how and draws about how she, when she was a child, she could just, art just flowed out of her freely. And then at some point she asks what she calls the two questions, which are, is this good or does this suck? And as soon as you're asking those, right, you, you're, you're, you're sunk. That's the death of creativity. And I then came across this term called creative mortification, mortification meaning death. And it's when somebody, when you're a child, usually when you're a child and you're doing something, whether it's, you know, 
art or music or playing a sport or doing your science, whatever your creative act is, and somebody gives you a too harsh critique, and you put down that paintbrush, you put down that pencil, you close your mouth, you put down the baseball bat, and you never do it again. And we've all had that experience. And so the challenge was that they, what I learned from that was instead of thinking, is this good, does this suck? You focus on the experience and you think, what could I try next time? What worked here? What would be fun? What would be interesting? And making that shift, because I'm a writer for a living, you know, and that for a living part is really important. When you do something for a living, you have to think about commerce. You have to think about marketplace. You have to think about selling. And it can erode some of that joy of creativity. And it can make it, you ask the two questions a lot more. And so the gift of blue and really the whole process of doing unraveling for me was was shifting and refocusing to process over product, to experience over result. And that's, again, why I sort of say the ugliest sweater, it didn't matter if it was ugly, if it was mm-hmm. gorgeous. It didn't matter. The, what mattered was what I got, all that I got, 200 pages of doing and what that gave me. Yeah, that's, that's the crux of it. What are you? What are you doing next? <laughs> are you? Can I you don't tell? know, Linda. Um, hmm. You know, um, I feel like my books have sort of followed my life cycle to a great degree. Um, so my first book, this is my what my eighth book, I think. Um, Something like that. Yeah, I've got a list school, here. It's big. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Schoolgirls. My first book was about uh, the changes that happened for girls, girls and self-image, um, and I followed girls through eighth grade. And I was not in eighth grade, but I was not also, I felt feel a fully formed adult. I was 30. And I feel like I was that that book, I was really, for me, although I'm not in it that much, I was looking at it as a girl and looking at my own girlhood. And then I kind of moved forward and wrote a book about women and life choices. And I wrote about um, my own experience um, trying to have a child and then several books that were about sort of motherhood and parenthood and issues around sexualization and sexuality and now here I am so I kind of feel like it will be something involving the next phase of my life um well you're not into cronehood yet I am actually apparently crone is 50 and I'm 61 so I'm well into my cronehood but yeah looking at what you know how I've been thinking a lot about you know how we approach um aging as women how how our culture looks at us how the logistics, you know, are terrible um, in how we care for, mm-hmm. and, and also how we end up doing the caring. Um, yeah. So there might be something. I might be wrong. That might not be what I do, but I've been thinking a lot about that. Well, it's a it's a growing demographic. I just hit eighty, and I think about it a lot. Yeah. Like <laughs> so, what? Yeah. What? Where is the support? I watch my friends and and myself too going through what we did with our parents, and it wasn't the aging necessarily. It wasn't even if they had declining health or declining cognition. It was that the logistical support is so awful, and the yeah. the gov the you know the the support by our our government and by our communities for elders is so bad that everybody goes into crisis at a certain point and that's the crisis yeah. it's not the crisis of of just the aging it's the crisis of where, where do we put you what do we do with you how do we yeah. feed you you know it's that stuff yeah yeah well just to pivot backward for a moment there is this long standing idea that knitting is for old ladies yep and that doesn't seem to be the case anymore and yet no. that, and yet that 
you know, that's still a, a, a sort of a trope that you see a lot, yeah. you know, not your grandmother's knitting. Well, I felt two ways about it. One is that's insulting, not your grandmother's knitting. You know, I mean, that is a form of misogyny too, ageism and misogyny. Nothing wrong with your grandmother's knitting. Nothing wrong with the fact that you and I are knitters. I mean, if it were just something that old ladies did, so the heck what? Old ladies are pretty powerful people and do not deserve to be marginalized. And what we do with our hands does not deserve to be marginalized. So there's that piece. Um, yeah. And I feel very strongly about that. And also, everybody crafts. You know, everybody knits. Uh, young people, older people, men, women, and those in between and beyond those designations, people of all races and cultures. And I talk in the book and spoke and wrote in my Times piece about this, that um, and the political expression of knitting has also been true across the ages and across the actual millennia, um, as well as across our lifespans, um, has been very important. So I write about, and, and in the book itself, I actually, because I'm that presumed demographic, uh, an older, straight, white, cis woman knitting, um, I didn't want any of my teachers to be, I wanted all my teachers to have some other aspect to their demographic, whether they were young, whether they were queer, whether they were non-binary, whether they were people of color. Um, so I don't make a big point of that, but it is true because I wanted to just subtly expand and challenge the idea of who knits. And I write about a lot about the... Um, different things that people have done with their knit. I mean, there's no, it's not an accident that when Donald Trump was elected, regardless of how you feel about the hats or regardless of how you feel about Donald Trump, I suppose, mm -hmm. um, women knit. That's the first thing we did. Yeah. That yeah. is historically a viable and important and uh, a way of honoring who we have been and how we have expressed our politics. Also, men, you know, Tom Daly sitting and knitting at the Olympics was um, a major thing. Or there are these wonderful guys in Chile who would um, dress in suits and dark glasses and knit in public with pink yarn to challenge gender ideas about gender. So lots of people knit and they do it for lots of reasons. True. Absolutely true. And other crafts too, but knitting is probably yeah. the most popular. And, and, you know, you think about how did knitting come to be? I mean, it's centuries old, and it's really a pretty tricky process. I know. I love it's, thinking about how that happened. Well, and even going so, back to, like, string, you yeah. know, the string revolution. Um, Elizabeth Whalen Barber writes about that in 20,000 Years of uh, Women's Work and how somebody thought of twisting stuff, and suddenly there was string, and that was as influential as fire, in terms of, or the, or so you know, in terms of changing who we were, that allowed us to bind, to trap, to make nuts, you know, all these things that you never think about that they couldn't do before somebody invented string and knitting. I guess you know because wool degrades, yay, good. Um, mm -hmm. It's hard to find, but well, the first weaving they found on bog bodies, which are these. Yeah bodies that were murdered or executed and thrown into the peat in Northern Europe. And um, the peat preserves protein. It, it yeah. dissolves bone. Preserves, and so the, the clothing was preserved. And they can see these Iron Age bodies wearing skirts that are woven of wool, and they can do color analysis um, yeah, and find out yeah. they were red. Or, I mean, it's great. And then the oldest purely knit garment, which is actually no. I don't, you probably know how to pronounce this better than null binded. Is that how you say that? Null bending, you know? yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's null binded, so it's kind of a not quite knit, but a, a form of needlework. Mm -hmm. um, is an e ancient Egyptian child sock. Um, yeah. And you're like, 
where's the other sock? It went into the <laughs> Niles version the of others. the dryer, right? Like we're, <laughs> exactly. way back then, moms were still going, what the heck happened to my kids? And it's this beautiful sock. You can Google it uh, yeah. where they it's dyed. You know, you think moms like their babies to look cute, even in ancient e- Egypt. And it's striped with these you know, using woad and um, weld and all these different dyes. And it's this beautiful sock. Well, that's it. That that all of these, all of the text, all of the textiles until a couple of hundred years ago were made by hand yeah. to some degree. And yet there was always, almost always, an element of creativity to it. That always. Of beauty. The people who made it wanted it to be special and wanted it to express something beyond just you know, this cloth will cover a tent or something. Right. And I mean, I think about the, you know, we come into this world, we're wrapped in cloth, right? We, we leave this world, we're wrapped in cloth. And in between, we spend most of our lives wrapped in cloth. It's, it's yeah. so essential that, and, and becomes so invisible. And, and I also thought when I was looking at the Greek myths about, you know, when you talk about that beauty and that, it's, it's, it's a divine property. And, I think that the idea that creation stories in so many cultures involve spinning, not in ours, um, yeah. but is makes so much sense to me because you think that, yeah. the, you know, women make things from nothing. We make thread from, from fluff. Uh, you know, we, we cook from flour. We make bread from flour. Of course, we make humans from nothing at all, you know? What could be more divine, right? (laughs) What could be more magical? What could be more divine? Of course, spinners are goddesses. Of course they are. I love that. I do. And I know that 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 will resonate a lot with with our listeners who find, you know, what you're doing is you're giving giving us uh, the spinners and the dyers and the knitters a sense of their place in the world beyond just, you know, their own personal... Yeah. enjoyment and creativity and, Thank and that's you. wonderful well i think what's been kind of with i mean i have to say that this has been possibly the most gratifying book i've ever published true it has been it really has been i mean oh they're all gratifying in different ways but this one's been the most joyful i guess and and it's not it's the only one i've written that's not on a fairly difficult topic so yeah <laughs> it feels and also it does it brings because i my place in the i guess swath of the writing culture has always been I've been as a woman I write as a woman and I have been able to sneak in and get these topics that are feminist topics or that are important to women or about women into mainstream press especially it was sneaky when um, there weren't a lot of issues about or by women covered off of what were sort of considered the women's pages back then Um, yeah and so to be able to take the arts of spinning, knitting, weaving, dyeing, all of that, and put it into, you know, places like the New York Times or, or just sort of mainstream media. And it has been a little bit of a fight to get it there, I have to tell you. But to do that, and I, I feel like I'm so, I'm so grateful and I'm so happy that I can bring all the people who do this work along with me, as well as all of the people who write and podcast about this work, yeah. you know? yeah. Well, it's it's remarkable. It's a, it's an interesting time in yes. so many ways that, you know, as the world whips forward at a pace we can hardly comprehend that these ancient ancient skills and ancient practices yeah 
not become only, more popular. <laughs> they become more popular. They don't just exist. They they come along with it. And I think uh, we need it seems them. like that's good balancing. Yeah. yeah, I think we need them. And I think I mean, I, I really the reason I think I could sell this book to my publisher was that during lockdown, everybody picked up these, you know, everybody was baking sourdough or doing whatever they were yeah. doing because we needed as we were, you know, we needed the grounding. We needed the meditative quality. And as everybody's constantly in the virtual, I mean, you and I right now, we're talking in the virtual. On one hand, that's very connecting. On the other hand, it was very disconnecting. And so yeah. to have something mm-hmm. really physical. And I also noticed, you know, I talk a lot in the in the book about um, language and how much <laughs> fiber, textiles, weaving, sewing, knitting, you know, permeate our language because they permeate our lives. And even as we've moved to the virtual world, we text, which is from the same root as textile. And what do we call the things that roll out from those texts? We call them threads. So weirdly, even when something is completely intangible, we try to go back to that tangible thing that we love so much. We need, as human beings, we need the tangible. And I think that's why those things are are continuing to be popular and are being discovered, rediscovered, taken up um, by younger people. My daughter's roommate in college uh, from last year, or last year's marriage, is an avid crocheter. And mm-hmm. she and another one of their friends started a crochet business. They sell their creations on Instagram. And they make pretty good money, I might add. And they're beautiful what they make. They're beautiful. Good, they crochet constantly. They love it. That's terrific. It's um, Crochet is having a moment, I got to say. Crochet is having a moment for young people. I think it is. I think it is. I wonder why. Well, it's I mean, they say it's easier than knitting, but not I think for it's me. easier to, yeah, me neither. I have a very hard time with crochet, but I, I think it's easier to learn, maybe. Yeah. To be able to do something true. quickly, but to get yeah. really proficient at it is very difficult. Yeah. But to do it quick, to do easy things, I think is easier and yeah. faster. True. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've given us so much to think about. I just want to thank you, Peggy, so much for being here with us today and giving all the spinners and dyers and knitters and even amateur shearers a sense of their place in the wider world because it's an important place. It really is. And I am so grateful and appreciative. And I will say that I I was a little shy about coming to speak with you because I know, I mean, I know who you are, obviously, and I know the artistry that you bring to these skills and that many of your listeners are such are such artists and I am such a rank amateur and I'm trying to embrace my amateurness and embrace my beginner's mind um, but I also am really aware that I am an amateur and a beginner but that's that's what we need is more beginners and you know your book's not a, it's not a how to book no, it's not a learn how to <laughs> learn how to do these things. But I feel like things. I'm bringing the I'm, I'm I'm writing a book that's getting all this attention, and I'm I'm really I'm don't want to go back to is this good and does this suck because I know that's bad. But I no, think really no. it's these I am not the person who who makes who creates these um, beautiful beautiful things, and I hope that my work can help elevate um, everyone who does. Well, I think what you're doing is is digging into the deeper meaning the deeper history, the deeper connections. Yeah. That, and that, is so, that is so <laughs> valuable. And I thank you very much. This is thank you, Linda. fun. Yeah, it really has. Thanks. Thanks to Trainway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.